0: Welcome to Black to Nature, a podcast about the environment and identity and the many ways we engage ourselves in the natural world. I'm Professor Stephanie Dunning, and I'll be your host. Each episode, I'll read an excerpt from my book, Black to Nature, Pastoral Return and African-American Culture, and bring a guest on the show to talk about the role that nature plays in helping us know and deepen into who we are. On this show, we'll be talking about rural life, histories of environmentalism in the Black community, and even spirituality, because for me, the natural world is our first temple. Join me for insightful, funny, and generative discussions about the intersection of being and nature. It is July 2016 and I'm riding in my cousin's big Suburban in rural North Georgia. She's invited me to a resort where a coworker has gifted her a big multi-room suite. There isn't much to do at this resort if you don't play golf except go to the swimming pool. The first day we go to the swimming pool, we're relieved that our family isn't the only black family there. Our sheer numbers seem to diffuse the discomfort of the white swimmers, almost. I try not to notice as white people slowly leave the pool when we enter. I manage to focus on my family, the sunshine, and the fresh, crisp smell of the southern spring air. On the second day, my cousin tells me there are some beautiful waterfalls nearby. It's a short hike from the trailhead to the waterfall, and we all set off. In all, we are five women with five children. We pull up directions on my phone's GPS app. It takes us deeper into the woods, into the country, until there is no longer a signal. We find ourselves creeping up a graveled road too narrow for two cars to pass side by side. There are few signs and no other travelers. My cousin gets nervous and as we round a corner only to reveal more unending country gravel road, she stops the car and backs up. What are you doing? I ask. I'm a hiker, a backpacker, a regular camper. I was looking forward to this family hike. It's too deserted. I can't do this. I can't take the chance. The chance of what? I ask. Of bumping into the wrong white people out there, she says. So, let's go back to that, let's go back to that that day. I mean, what what, what was, what were we, I mean, you know, if you think back on that incident, so there we are, we're going up the gravel road, there's all the signs go away, nobody's around, and <laughs> it suddenly, it's like, you know, oh, hell no. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> I was like, turn around. <laughs> Not today. Um, Not today, right. I'm
0: speaking with my cousin, Jonna Brantley. She lives in Atlanta. We were born the same year, the same week. To say that we're close is an understatement. We spent most of our young lives together, and my earliest memories of nature were shared with her. So, I mean, where do you think, I mean, so when you, when, like, in that moment, like, you know, what's the, what, what's the, what's the, like, historical memory or the 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 you know like what is the thing like where do where did where do you have a memory of the first time you felt like it was unsafe to be in you know a a wilderness backcountry, rural space as a black person you know what i mean sorry
1: i'm okay on that day i just remember us going to see can we find a waterfall you remember yeah, yeah. we yeah. just wanted to see at day we we googled it and it it said that and we put it in GPS, and it said that we were going, <laughs> we were going to this nature's walk or, uh, place, and I was fine. Yeah. Until we got to the one lane road. Yeah. And um, the dirt roads, the gravel roads, and yeah. the signs went away. Yeah. I was fine. Um, I just didn't. We had the children with us. I did not feel any ease, and we were we were in Tennessee. Uh, where were we? I think we were in Tennessee or somewhere we, like not
0: to, far. Didn't we go to Helen?
1: Yes, that's it. That's it. Okay. You're absolutely okay. right. Because we drove over to Helen. So we was not far. We, yeah. we were we far because we went and toured Helen. Okay. But that was fine. <laughs> yeah. So we're in the Helen park because it was open, it was a lot of people, uh it was signs. Okay. Um But on that road, um, I don't know. I just felt uneasy. I felt uh, unsafe. I felt something was going to jump out. I did not know who or what was going to jump out. But I just, you know, I didn't feel at ease at all. Yeah. And And that's crazy.
0: Well, I guess what I'm hearing you say is it's not really the nature itself so much as it's the isolation.
1: Uh Uh-huh. That's it. With me. Yeah. With me. The isolation. and it felt like we had went off the grid. Mm-hmm. It really did. Mm-hmm. It felt like we were out there uh, all by ourselves and um, on our own. Yeah. And I, I didn't like it. Yeah. I didn't like that feeling.
0: Racial violence in rural places is one of the reasons that many Black Americans avoid activities like hiking, camping, and backpacking. The history of lynching as collective historical and political memory disincentivizes black participation in nature because the vulnerability one can feel in isolated, natural spaces can be overwhelming. In the song Strange Fruit sung by Billie Holiday, the ways that nature has been weaponized against black people can be intuited in the famous lines, Southern trees bear a strange fruit. This juxtaposition of lynching violence and nature can also be observed in Richard Wright's poem Between the World and Me. In the poem, the speaker is walking in the woods and comes upon the evidence of a murder. And the sooty details of the scene arose, thrusting themselves between the world and me, he writes. The speaker is referring to the charred remains of a lynched body, which drives a wedge between him and the natural world. This is the history and the contemporary circumstance that intervenes in the black person's relationship with nature. Just last week in July, 2020, a black man in Indiana was illegally and violently detained by a group of angry white men in a state park. Yet media reporting on black people and nature often implies an indifference about the environment in black communities. But such perceptions of black disengagement from nature ignore the ways in which nature has been forced to collude with racism, turning places of natural beauty into reminders of death. Yeah. And you know, in the book, when I, you know, I, I open this episode by reading, those are the first lines of the book. And, and after that section where I, Am done kind of narrating what happened that day when we didn't do the hike and we didn't see the waterfall. You know, the next sentence is, you know, my cousin had a point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because there's this whole history, right, of 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 black people being lynched in the woods, right. isolated, right. alone, out there,
1: mm-hmm. uh, vulnerable.
0: And and I think right. that even though what we see happening now in terms of black people being at risk is much more in the cities and much more with police or Mm -hmm. vigilantes like a George Zimmerman type of person there's still this lingering kind of historical feeling about like the isolation of the wilderness of the woods of Mm -hmm. being out in these rural you know kind of spaces and and landscapes Mm -hmm. and I think you know for me as somebody who's doing this work I'm always wondering like how can we negotiate that Cause it, cause there's, there's a couple of different things. Like, first of all, the sad, sad, painful thing is that as a black American, there are no spaces where we can be 100% sure that we're safe. Right. You know? Not one, Mm-mm. not even your own home. Right. Like, recently, oh, exactly.
1: I was you
0: know, well, if I'm not safe anywhere, I might as well go, you know, into nature because I love nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, so but but I think that there's a couple of different like there are these like different levels there that that really get teased out in what happened when we were, you know, trying to find this waterfall in the middle mm-hmm. of nowhere, mm-hmm. this tiny road, no signs, tiny just, road in the middle of nowhere, right? Like the vulnerability
1: but of the, that, right? But the thing is, like we were on a two way a two lane street, yeah. It, it, you could see the lines in the street. And then the further we went into the woods, uh, in the depth of the woods, it became a one lane road and it was just, just crazy. It was yeah. just crazy. And like you said, you want to feel you, number one, you want to feel one with nature, nature, but you want to feel safe as well. And you, um, as like you said, it's a black person or black people Where do we feel safe?
0: Safe ground. What would it mean for us as Black folks to find safe ground, whether we're in the city or whether we're in the country? I'm really interested in this idea of how we can reclaim natural spaces as safe ground for ourselves. Yeah.
1: Where do we feel safe? And, you know...
0: And at least in the city, I'll say this about the city. At least in the city or in the suburbs, you you have a witness. You can feel like I have a witness. Yes. And yeah. there's some, I think there's something emotional or, or this like historical memory, collective memory about being out in the woods that feels like I could go out here and never be heard from again.
2: Mm-hmm. And no one
0: will be able mm-hmm. to say what happened to me.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. That's true, and and um, your backyard is just <laughs> beautiful, and that's enough for me. <laughs> I can go, I can go deep into your backyard and feel like <laughs> I am one with nature. Uh, but even my son's father lives in Barnesville, and yeah. some back roads is just, mm. uh, I don't feel safe. So yeah. it's you know it's just not up north. This is down south. This yeah. is down South Georgia. And it's just, um, it, I, I mean, I guess it's just the, the loneliness and the not feeling safe, um, just knowing that you're the only one. And any, at any time, at any moment, something can happen. That just plays in my mind.
0: You know, this is the trauma of this, is that we constantly right. have to think about our lives being on the line when we just live in day to day. But I want to say, even up here, up north, you know, I, you know, Miami is in a very rural area. I used to jokingly Mm -hmm. tell my students back in the day that if I ever broke down on the, on the little road that goes from Miami to Cincinnati, when I used to live in Cincinnati, Mm -hmm. I would never knock on the door of any of those houses for help. I I used to tell my students, I will crawl into the trunk and wait until morning. (laughs) If I ever broke down on that road, you know, I mean, that's the, that's the sort of palpable sense of like, being in these in these rural, predominantly white landscapes where it's like you knock on that door, you don't know who's going to open that door. You don't know how. they, right, You don't know who's going to door. Right. But when you knock on that door, not only are they, you know, in a rural area dealing with like who's knocking on my door, but it's also like many of them are unhinged. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so mm-hmm. that that transforms the landscape in some really kind of frightening ways. I find myself drawn to the poetry of Lucille Clifton. I love the way she decenters the experience of death and pain a racist history has stitched into our understandings of nature. Clifton emphasizes in her poem, "The Earth is a living thing, all the many things in nature that are beautiful and black, a black shambling bear, a black hawk circling, a diamond blind in the black belly of coal. And finally, she defines Earth as a black and living thing, a favorite child of the universe, rolling her hand through her kinky hair. Like an apple tree, apples the Earth peoples. Black people, Earth's first people, are Earth fruit dropped upon rich soil, ripe with life and human origin. This overdetermined word, nature, bears the historical trace of not only trauma. But also divinity, some faint echo of a grand organic spinning. Anansi as God, the world as web. The earth precedes humans in every cultural account, and there has never been any question that the earth is a womb from which we arose. Out of the primordial soup of the seas we came, breaking our mother's water, wiggling to land, looking for our feet. When Lucille Clifton asserts, and in fact feels the necessity of asserting, that the earth is a living thing, she is speaking against the pervasive notion that the earth is a dead and inanimate thing, an enlightenment notion that inaugurates the anti-blackness upon which the foundation of Western civilization rests. Can we do in our daily life, what Clifton does so powerfully in her poetry? Can we find the portals to ourselves and to each other at the place where rich black soil meets the horizon? Can I look at a tree and not remember the noose? Can I find a place somehow where I can be alone with the purr of owls and the smell of pine? At stake for me in my embrace of wild places, of the natural world, is my connection to the divine. To be deprived of that connection is for me a futile attempt to devalue me so thoroughly that it suggests to me and to the world that I have no place in existence in being itself. When I walk with bare feet in the forest, I am reminded that there is another story about my body and my being, that there is another place where the sun etches my secret name into my skin, and where wind and rain hug and cling to me because I am a favorite child of the universe. This is true for all of us, black, brown, and white, neurotypical and neuroatypical, cis and trans, straight and queer. We belong to this earth that made us and loves us. I refuse the history that tells me I don't belong here. I did not come into this world. I came out of it. We are all the fruit of this ancient tree. I know that the earth wants me because it made me. I am its child, and no violence, no matter how horrific, can make that untrue. Now, so we so you mentioned my yard. So let's talk about the back back part mm-hmm. of the yard. The last time y'all were here,
1: you went not go into my back part of the yard, and that is enough. That's why I said <laughs> when I want to feel one with nature, you know, I'm not I'm not that type. I'm not that person. You know that. Uh, but if I I would I would feel safe on your grounds. Yeah, you are. <laughs> I yes. know. Yeah, yeah. Everyone is safe
0: on our grounds, and mm-hmm. spe- and especially you. So, um, so one of the things that we were talking about uh, in relation to this nature thing or this nature piece is like how our grandmother, like the vegetable man, even in the city, mm-hmm. the, the, the vegetable truck guy used to come around and grandmama would, you know, she lived in that high rise or she would go down and, and get these like farm fresh vegetables. My grandmother, Elizabeth Frazier, Spent her childhood in rural Georgia and knew the quiet language of plants and filled her house with them. Her gentle way with plant life was mirrored in all of her relationships, and she remains in my memory the most accepting and joyful person I have ever known. After she passed away, with three dozen of her family members holding hands in a circle around her hospital bed, I have a dream of her as an ageless angel standing in a field of purple flowers. There is a sense in my work that black enjoyment of the natural world does not show up as a narrative of conquest or manifest destiny. Instead, what I see in the work I examine in my book and in my relationships is what I call interbeing with nature, a concept borrowed from Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen teacher, where one of the ways the interconnectedness between black people and the land shows up as a gentle and joyful relationship with plants and food. And I just remember that having like, almost like a, like you can just really feel something about the land in that. I, I It's hard right. for me
1: to describe. You know what I mean? Right, right. It, it, number one, it was not like it was coming from the grocery store and it had been cleaned because mm-hmm. it had dirt on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was no, um, no, uh, wax or anything mm-hmm. the greens felt like they came from the earth mm-hmm. the the uh, everything had to be washed i remember when grandmama got whatever she got the greens the uh squash the tomatoes the okra everything was green, and yeah. it was so fresh and she had to wash it i yeah. remember her yeah. washing it yeah mm-hmm. so it was it was really fresh and it was earthy just like what you said That's the first organic produce, right? That's the first
0: real organic produce that we were lucky enough to have access to because our grandmother had that connect to this vegetable guy. And then, you know, granddaddy would bring those
1: muscadines. Right. Watermelons. Yep. Yep. And he introduced us to yellow meat as they call it. You remember the yellow watermelons on the inside? Oh yeah. It's not it's not it's not one of my favorites, but I, I preferred the red. But he used to call it yellow meat. And I was yeah. like, What is yellow meat? But it was a yellow watermelon. And mm-hmm. um muscadines, and what else? Um, cantaloupe. You were talking about the cantaloupes, cantaloupes he
0: would bring. Mm-hmm. And those yeah.
1: cantaloupes would be so sweet.
0: It is hard yeah. to find a cantaloupe like that in the grocery store today. It is. But for, our, is. for people listening to this who are like muscadines and, and and pulling out their Google search, let's talk about the <laughs> muscadine. You know, muscadines is kind of a, a mixed blessing as far as a fruit it goes. It is. it has got that thick mm-hmm. outer skin. Mm-hmm. And it's yes, kinda, some people kinda, eat. Yeah, some people eat that. It's kind of mm-hmm. prickly. It's almost kind of prickly.
1: And, then, and right. then
0: it's tart. It's very, very tart.
1: The, the, the whole, the, the, the outer part was tart. But if you would get a good one, it's sweet yeah. on the inside. It's sweet. And it reminds me of a plum um, mm-hmm. and a grape.
0: There is a reverence for the natural world in these memories that we conjure together of our ancestors, of the land, of the plants, which sustained us in childhood and hold us together now. Filaments of experience, which reveal our enjoyment and love of the natural world and the way that our grandparents taught us to recognize our relationship to it, bubbling up in this beautiful conversation. I am grateful and honored for this living archive of the natural world that grounds me to the earth and to my family illuminating my right to be here, illuminating all of our right to be here. We discovered the natural world together as children. I love you. Thank you for being on the show. Love you. I was recently asked to participate in a project the Black American Tree Project. Here's what it's about.
2: Hi, my name is Danietta Najoli. My name is Frida Itum, and we are the authors of the Black American Tree Project. The Black American Tree Project is a unique participatory experience that fosters understanding, respect, truth, and reconciliation about the experience of Black Americans from pre-colonial Africa to present day. And we began working together on this project in the fall of 2019 and who would have imagined that in just a few short months, we would have entered into an era in American society where we need this project now more than ever. Three things we want you to know about the black American tree project is. We place our thoughtful gaze on the black American and the experience of being taken from their home in Africa, captured and sold into a life of slavery to build a country that was never expressly intended for them. We then explore what it looks like for the remaining members of the family who are left behind, whether in Africa or in America, and how that fracture has impacted the family often for generations. The last thing we look at is the institutional force that has impacted a Black American and their family life. We look at what were the justifications for subjugating and marginalizing a Black American throughout history as well as its ripple effects. These effects are not only on Black Americans and their families, but on people within the institutional forces themselves. So we hope you can participate in the Black American Tree Project. Our hope is that you will become more educated about the Black American experience from this unique perspective. And that you will use this new learning to courageously find your authentic way into the Black American story, where you can begin to change the culture for the better for us all. Thank you.
0: If you'd like to know more about the Black American Tree Project, check out my Facebook page, Black and Country, where you'll find more resources about this project and information about how you can bring this dynamic performance piece to your campus or organization. Before I conclude this episode, it's time for a segment I hope to include on each show. I'm calling it the Black to Nature Camp Book. Basically, it's a temperature check on all the places that I have been camping, hiking, or backpacking. Parks and places where I've had positive experiences and have no hesitation recommending will get a 5-star rating. In this episode, I'm going to review Stone Lake State Park. This park is quite close to where I live and I've spent a lot of time there doing recreational outdoor activities. Stone Lake State Park is in Stone Lake, Ohio, right outside of Cincinnati. And it's a 2,000 acre park that has hiking trails, a beach area by the lake. People kayak there. People ride their bikes around there. And there's camping. There's camping spots with electric hookups for RVs and non-electric hookups for people who are just doing the tent thing. There are lots of bathrooms all over the campground, as well as a fairly large shower house. There's dumping areas for RVs and water hookups. The campground is very clean and very well maintained. There's a gathering area equipped with a movie screen where they often show family-friendly movies. Dogs are allowed on leash. There are a couple of basketball hoops, there's a playground, and the park officials are in the process of creating what appears to be a truly epic Frisbee golf course. I recently camped in Stone Lake a few weeks ago, and most of the campers were white, but there were two other black interracial families camping as well as two Indian American families. I saw zero Confederate flags and zero campaign flags of any kind. One of the long-term campers, however, who serves as a kind of unofficial park employee did have a Blue Lives Matter flag and several different kinds of Don't Tread On Me flags all around their specific RV and camp area. I'm going to give Stone Lake State Park a Black to Nature Campbook rating of four, mostly because the Don't Tread On Me flag right at the entrance of the park is an unwelcoming sign for a certain set of people like myself. If you'd like to see some photos of Stone Lake State Park, Check out my Facebook page, Black and Country, or find me on Instagram at black underscore the number two underscore nature. What kind of bird do you think that is? I don't know. Cheep, 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 cheep. Cheep, cheep. Not a very good bird caller. You want to give it a try?
2: No, mom.
0: (laughs) What do you think about when you're hiking? When it's going (laughs) to (laughs) end. My book, Black to Nature, Pastoral Return and African-American Culture, is forthcoming from the University Press of Mississippi in spring 2021. I'd like to thank my cousin, Jonna Brantley, and my daughter, Omi Elizabeth, who are both featured on this episode. I'd also like to thank my partner, Andy Brath, and all my friends and family who support me in bringing this content to you. I hope you'll join me on the next episode of Black to Nature, where I talk to my friend Allison Jones about camping while Black. That episode drops on September 1st. Until then, keep on blooming. When was the last time you had any muscadines?
1: I don't eat them anymore, but my mom... Go to a muscadine patch with her best friend and pick some all the time when they're in season. However, oh, wow. they're only in season. Mm-hmm. It's and it's uh it's it's in the part of McDonough that that is still uh rural. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that they have muscadine field and you go and you pick them. Oh, it's wow. muscadine wow. Mm-hmm. But you see, got to you got to do time, it when you come back.
0: I was gonna say the next time Omi and I come back, we're going to do muscadine picking. See how Omi likes yeah. muscadines. Mm-hmm. See, yeah, she has never had them. No, I don't. I don't think you can get muscadines up here, uh, 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 north of the Mason Dixon line. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Come back home, sugar. Come back home.
0: <laughs> I'm on my way. All of the music used on this episode can be found in the YouTube Audio Library, which is a channel dedicated to search, catalog, sort and publish no copyright music vlog music and royalty free music for content creators the music in the black american tree project segment is called we are slaves and was written by fat steve beats check him out at his website reverbnation.com forward slash fat steve music or check black and country on facebook for a link to his page